mind. I had one of those really busy weeks last week, lots and lots of encounters with Christians. A um, friend of mine sent me a message yesterday about certain issues, theological issues, and we were back going backwards and forwards. And there was all this stuff I could choose from, and I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but then I suddenly felt, you know what, I, I just felt a strong urge to actually preach on the following scripture. Yeah, that one. Most of us will be aware of this. And if we're not aware of the scripture as a whole, we will certainly know by heart some of its content. This is from Matthew 16, uh, verse 13 through to 19. Jesus had just had a bit of an encounter with the, the Pharisees. And then he moves on. When he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven now the reason why I've described this as a profound scripture is that it actually provides one of the basic building blocks of church here on earth It is also, or understanding of this particular scripture, is also one of the things that separates the Catholic Church from the Protestant Church. And I will explain this now before I move on to some other discussion. You may be aware that the Catholic Church regards Peter as the first bishop and that the popes follow down his line so that there's a a line that goes from Peter down through all of the the popes through the history of the Catholic Church. Catholics believe that um, Peter went to Rome where he became bishop. So he was the very first bishop. He was the bishop of Rome. Now, because he was the first bishop of Rome and because the popes carry on that line, the rock upon which the church is built is Peter and then the popes. This is where the the idea of what they call the magisterium, or, or the magisterium of the church comes from. 
It's the church that holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven and it is the church that has the authority to bind on earth and to loose on earth. And really what binding and loosening means in the biblical context is to make an authoritative decision about something. All right, so the, the Catholic Church, of course, believed that because the, the Pope is carrying on that, that line from Peter and because it's the church that holds the, the keys to the kingdom and has the authority to bind and loose, when the Pope makes statements on, if you like, theological matters, then the Pope is infallible. Now, Catholics don't believe that the Pope is immaculate. In other words, they don't believe that everything the Pope says or writes is infallible. It's only when the Pope is speaking on, if you like, those theological doctrinal positions that the Pope is infallible. So there's a whole lot of material written that comes out of the Vatican that is not regarded as infallible. If everything was, then they would say that their Pope is immaculate, but they don't their Pope is infallible when he's making pronouncements on matters concerning um, church theology or church doctrine. Now, Protestants don't believe this. Essentially, the Protestant church believes that the rock isn't Peter. Now, it was quite common for teachers, for the rabbis and so on, to, to use plays on words. It was a common literary device. So the Greek word for Peter was Petros, and the Greek word for a little rock was Petra. Right? So in all likelihood, Jesus, because he was teaching at this point, was using a play on words like other teachers at the time did. And that the rock is not Peter the person, but the revelation given to him by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was the Christ, the one anointed by God. And he was the son of the living God, whom he claimed to be. So the rock upon which the church is built is the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, not Peter the bishop. Now, there really is no credible evidence that Peter ever was the bishop of Rome. There's plenty of evidence that there was a church there and it had a leadership structure. But certainly at this point, it's very hard to substantiate the Catholic position that Peter went to Rome and became the first bishop of the church there. But even if he did, we understand this scripture as saying that the rock upon which the church is built is the rock of the revelation of who Jesus is. And then he says, I will build my church. And it's really interesting because Towards the end of last year, 
I, I got pretty, I guess, despondent about lack of growth in the church and the fact that, you know, we had a church census coming up and I was going to have to say 10 people, 8 people. The last Sunday in February, we only had four of us here because of all the rain. And I'm just, am I going to write four or should I write 10? Because that's how many people would have been here if it wasn't wet. <laughs> I, like, I was starting to say, Lord, what, what's the point? And then this is what he said. He said, I will build my church. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> he said, I will build my church. Now, look, we've got to be obedient, but we can't huff and puff and knock on doors and put ads in the paper and put leaflets in letterbox and think we build the church. Jesus said this, I will. And what does he build the church on? The rock of the revelation of who he is. If I want to build the church, I need to tell people who Jesus is. Then he goes on to say the gates of Hades. Some translations say hell, the New Living Translation, which is regarded as it's in the regarded as one of the top five translations in terms of accuracy. The New Living Translation says the powers of hell will not prevail against it. And it's really interesting because there are two perspectives here. Like if you're kind of a glass half half full person you're likely to see that as the church is kind of cowering away here because the gates of hell there are protecting us from the enemy not bursting out and getting us but if you're the other way around is it the glass half empty you've got a different picture <laughs> they're, they're in there and we are plundering it you know, I, I think the latter is a better representation of what the church is doing. Figuratively speaking, those gates can't hold us back from releasing the prisoners. It's not, hell's not having a crack at the church. The church is having a crack at hell. The powers of hell, the powers of darkness cannot, will not prevail against the church that Jesus Christ builds on the rock of the revelation of who he is. You know why? Because it's not a structure. It's not a building. It's not a set of canon law. It's not a pope. It's a revelation. Nothing can destroy a revelation. You know why? Because it's in here. It cannot be destroyed. Well, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is a, um, an allusion, if you like, a, a reference to the physical keys that high officials held literally to the kingdoms. They were big, heavy keys made out of iron usually. So what, what is the key to heaven? Have a think about it before I tell you what I reckon the answer is. Because I've done a lot of reading around this, so I've got a bit of an advantage over you. What, what are the keys to heaven? What do you reckon? 
You can guess it, but I can't see you, so I can't shoot you, remember? Knowledge? Knowledge? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Well, both are actually quite close. It's the gospel. Knowledge of the gospel. Knowing the truth about heaven, the truth about Jesus. And see, when we when we preach the gospel, we're using the keys of the kingdom of heaven to let people in. The amazing thing about Peter, this is a bit of an aside, he gets this revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> what does he do? When the chips are down and Jesus is going to the cross, doesn't he deny Christ three times? So he did have a complete revelation, right? But then what happens in the book of Acts? What happens when he gets baptised in the Holy Spirit? What happens then? Doesn't he turn the world upside down? Doesn't he preach and thousands of people come to Jesus? Why? Because he's got the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the key is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he used that key to open heaven for so many thousands of people after he was baptised in the Holy Spirit. This is what Protestants believe. And this is one reason why I don't think there will ever be a reconciliation, full reconciliation between the Catholic Church and the other. It, it cannot happen. While, while for them, they interpret this scripture as setting up a church structure through the man Peter. I love, I love Catholics. My brother-in-law is a Catholic and his brother is a Catholic priest. They know Jesus. I've got no doubt that they'll be going to heaven. We'll see plenty of Catholics in heaven. But I think this, this, they've interpreted this really important scripture incorrectly. Possibly because way back there in history, they didn't understand the importance of reading the Word of God in full context of the whole council of the scripture. And also in the context of the culture and history of the time in which the words were actually first written. Now, by the way, the, um, the, the, the translation here is fairly close to what we call the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the, the, the Old Testament. We're, we're, we're talking about some words here. This obviously wasn't in existence. But uh, Jesus and, and Paul and all of the, the original apostles and so on, they would have read the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that, that's why we've got words like Hades in it, because Hades, literally, in Jewish thinking, Hades was just the place where the dead go. Right? It's sort of, a, I guess, like a holding place until the final uh, resurrection. Uh, church... The word ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesia, was used for church. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what that meant in a moment. Um, so what we're reading here is a pretty decent translation of what 
the early readers of the Septuagint would have understood. So we've got the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's the gospel. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, legally speaking, that was about making authoritative decisions. So people with authority making decisions about matters or about people. Now, I just want to read to you a literal translation of those words. I just have to find it. Some of you will be familiar with Young's literal translation of the Bible. Um, There's a number of Bible apps where where you can get it. Now, this sounds a little bit complex because in English we don't have quite the same um, construction of, of language. But a literal English translation of those phrases would actually read like this. Whatever you mayest bind upon the earth shall, having been bound in the heavens, and whatever thou mayest loose upon the earth shall be having been loosed in the heavens. Now really what this is saying is the church has the truth, right? This is it. That's already established in heaven. When we make decisions in line with the word of God, they've already been upheld in heaven. Now let me me just... um, I want to expand on this because it's really, really important. I don't know about you, but I went through that period, I guess in the early 90s, when it was pretty common for us to pray about, I bind you and I loose you and all this sort of jazz. I look back on that time and I'm not sure now that I had really the right understanding of binding and loosing. It's not not about a power that I might have to see my will imposed on any circumstances or on any person. Because it's actually about the church, my church, the church of Jesus, making decisions that align with the truth of the word of God. Because that's already established in heaven. I want to refer to two, uh, two more scriptures. One's Matthew 18. I think it runs from about 15 to, to 20. Let me just find it for you. Because this is the other reference to binding and loosing that we see in the word of God. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, going through to verse 20. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Those two last verses, 19 and 20, that are talking about agreement um, and where two or three are gathered, that's an, uh, uh, alluding to a legal principle of needing two or three witnesses to a thing. So nobody could be condemned unless there were two or three uh, witnesses to what they had done. But you see, the thing here where it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, is a reference to the church undertaking what Jesus um, specified as the way to deal with sin. So we know what sin is because the Bible tells us. If a brother or a sister sins against us, Jesus is saying you go to them. And if you sort it out between yourselves, well and good. If that doesn't work, take two or three with you. That's the witness thing, the legal thing about witnesses. If that doesn't work, then you do it before the church. Now that certainly doesn't happen very often. I've been involved on two occasions where it has. um, And certainly in one occasion, because it involved me, it worked out very well indeed. Um, and I'm still friends with the person who raised the original, if you like, allegation. Um, but churches don't do this very often. But see, this is a context in which the church has the power to loose and bind according to the truth in the Word of God. Now, I want to give you another example. And this is from the book of Acts, Acts 15. And it actually runs... Oh, fair way. I think it goes from about verse verse 1 through to verse 35. I don't know whether I'll read the whole lot out, but, but this is a really good example of the authority of the church to make a determination over a matter of doctrine. I'm going to read some of it anyway, and if you fall asleep before I finish, I'll stop. So this is Acts 15 verses 1 through 35. Now, just by way of background, it was in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, I think, that really was when it became clear to all that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Right? At, at that point, we see the first ministry to a Gentile and the first conversion of a Gentile. And from then on, the book of Acts describes so much of what happened among the Gentiles. And of course, the epistles in the main are written to Gentile congregations. So Acts 15, 1 to 35. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all believers very glad. 
when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So this is the church in the act of, in this case, binding. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he had accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So the dispute is whether or not you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose people for, uh, sorry, to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, this is James speaking, therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. People read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, 
They were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So this was a gathering of leaders of the church who made an authoritative ruling on the matter of whether or not circumcision was essential for salvation. And their ruling was that it was not. And they gave their reasons there. This is an example of binding. Now, there are other examples, I think. One that comes to mind would be the, um, uh, the meeting of churches in um, Nicaea, I think it is, which led to the development and agreement on the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the basis of Christian faith all over the world. Some people have a, use a slightly different version called the Apostles' Creed, which just has a, 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 a couple of phrases inserted. Uh, and then there's also the Athanasian Creed, which was developed by a different group. But, but by and large, the, the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith are in those, those creeds. That would be, I think, another example of this principle of binding and loosing where the church, in this case a whole bunch of different major denominations, well back then they came together at Nicaea and they agreed that this is the basis of the Christian faith. And if you read the Nicene Creed, you can Google it, you'll see, yep, this is basically what establishes us as Christian or not. If we believe those things, we're in. If we don't, we're out, so to speak. Should we go around praying every five minutes, I, I bind you, I loose you? I don't think there's any harm in doing it, but I don't think it's any more powerful than any other prayer. But, but the principle, this principle, it, it's about the church knowing the truth of God and making those authoritative decisions that reflect the truth of God. Right? And unfortunately, I guess English, the English language doesn't have quite the capacity to express exactly what the original language meant. The truth having been bound in heaven. See, it's bound already. And then when we make authoritative decisions that align with it, then what we say on the earth is bound in heaven or is loosed in heaven and it's really important I, I, I don't know that the church really does this I, I don't know that the church does that whole thing about sorting out sin very well in fact the text messages that were going backwards and forwards between my friend and myself yesterday the last message he sent me was was he, he sort of asked a question should church get involved in politics now basically the answer is no well, I'm, that doesn't mean individuals shouldn't. That's a whole different issue altogether. I believe wholeheartedly that individual Christians should be involved in politics. They should be involved in the arts. They should be involved in the military. They should be involved in education. Or they should be involved in every sphere of human life. They should be involved in health and allied health services. Right? So the work that, that Fiona does, that um, Jeanette does, 
in early childhood and in aged care. You should be involved in that. The work that Pamela does in, in the accounting sphere should be involved in that. The work that Harney does, even this bloke's work, it's important. It's really important. Um, because, see, God has ordained that we be salt and light where? Not in the church. In the world. When Mark signs a contract with Opera Queenstein, he's being salt and light in the world. Apart from the fact that he brings joy and pleasure to so many people as he sings. See, everything. Tamara and I had a, a phone conversation about her own work just the other day. I think it was Friday. Whatever she turns her hand to, be salt and light. So this is not to say that, that um, all of us shouldn't be engaged in the world being salt and light wherever God has placed us. Just an issue that the church itself isn't meant to be a political instrument. God's got different spheres in which to deal with that. Now I lost my thread totally. But it was a really important thing we were, we were in conversation about yesterday. But see, one of the things the church ought to be doing is dealing with sin. And frankly, I agree with my friend, says most of the time we don't. Now, I, I used to work in a place where people used to invoke the Matthew A. You know, that principle every time they didn't agree with you. And I, I got so sick of that. There were two people I used to work I said, look, please don't invite me for coffee if you want to trot that, that out. Because unless, unless you want to deal with a sinful act I've committed against you, don't ask me for coffee. Because when we disagree, we disagree about doctrine or we disagree about policy. That's not sin. I guarantee if Christy and I sat down over a big coffee and started talking, sooner or later we'd disagree on something. Does that... She said yes! <laughs> you should have said, I don't think so. <laughs> but see, that doesn't mean either of us has sinned. You know, so sometimes Christians can get really petty about that kind of thing, and yet we don't deal with sin in the church. That weakens the church. It does. Lose our power. It does. And we go around <laughs> pointing our fingers at the world about that moral issue and that moral issue. Talk about having a big plank in our eyes. We ought to be invoking the Matthew 18, 18 principle, the binding and loosing, in terms of how we deal with discipline within the context of the church itself. Now, of course, there's no one here who sins, eh? So I don't have to worry about all this stuff. I'm funny. 
I'm just hopeful. <laughs> you know, but if I employed Brian and I didn't pay him for a couple of weeks, he really needs to come and talk to me about that. Because I reckon that is sin. Right? It's going against an important biblical principle. And if I just say, not interested, then he should come back. Preferably with a couple of big Christian friends. <laughs> Maybe one of them carrying a baseball bat. <laughs> I don't know. And then if I say, mate, not interested, that's when you come to the church. And the church. How often does that happen? Sorry, we tend to sweep it all under the carpet. And I've seen that myself, being, having been in leadership in numerous churches. I've seen that over and over and over again. You know, I've had people come to this church that are not coming now, and don't try and work out who it is, because you won't. But who want to have an upfront, you know, leadership role five minutes after they join? Sorry. Even if you came with a recommendation from your pastor, I still don't know how glad your pastor is to get rid of that. <laughs> hey, I talk to pastors, man, and I talk about what they call transfer growth. And some pastors are really glad that another pastor's had a bit of transfer growth. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not, I can tell you now, oh, I won't let anybody in a position of leadership until I got to know them. And that, that's not meant to be an insult to anybody. I won't have anybody up here who isn't living a life which reflects the truth of the Word of God. Now, do we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. That, that's not the issue. Jeanette and I had a big argument last night. <laughs> oh, it's right, of course, but... Um, <laughs> we're not perfect. We stuff up. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. You see, Jesus will build his church on the rock of revelation of who he is. The church cannot harbour sin. Because if the church harbours sin, then how do we prevail? This is where loosing and binding is so important. It's also important that we know the truth. We've got to know this word intimately. Now, one other thing I just want to comment on is this word church. I will build my church. Now, you know my attitude surrounding the importance of church gathered versus church scattered or, or sent out. I've actually done some more reading. I've always felt a little tiny bit uncomfortable with that kind of dichotomy. I don't really like dualism, where like there's one and then there's the other. Because often, in most contexts, it doesn't work all that well. Um, and, and generally speaking, when I've spoken about this from the, from the lectern, what I've got in my heart is my own reaction against those 
who essentially are trying to undermine the institutional church by preaching about the true meaning of ecclesia, which just means the people, or a call, it actually means literally a called out group of people. Right? And so they argue that really the institutional church doesn't matter. I, I've always felt uncomfortable with that, and of course as a pastor, I'm now naturally predisposed to want to defend the institutional church, because I'm a pastor. Right. Anyway, I, don't, I did some more reading about this, and again, going back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of essentially the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and that's the translation that everybody writing in the New Testament would have had, right? Because essentially they were Greeks. Or oh, sorry, they spoke, they spoke um, Greek. The writers I'm talking about, not necessarily the characters but the writers. Now it turns out that in the Septuagint, that Greek word ecclesia, it was used to describe the community of Israel. Now think about that. Well, it is, but it's more than... Well, it is, but I think that's incomplete. Think about Israel as community. What, how did they act as community? How did, what was the point of the Sabbath? It wasn't just doing no work, but what did they do on the Sabbath? What were they supposed to do on the Sabbath? They gathered together. That's exactly right. I suspect the reason they didn't have a different word to describe them gathering on the Sabbath or on the other feast days or, or, or essentially the whole year in the Sabbath year, they didn't make a distinction between being gathered and being, as it were, scattered out six days of the week, farming or soldiering or whatever it was they were doing. And, and that is so like Old Testament theology, if you like, that, that there's no distinction really between individual and community. And, and, and in the New Testament, most of the time the Greek word ecclesia, there's only a couple of references to church as, as if you like, as an institution, as a building and with um, you know, staff and all that kind of thing. It mostly means the people. But I actually think now, having done... Like, I agonised about this. I agonised about this. When I look now at it, and, and I've read all around it, it's not about some kind of dualistic idea that there's the institutional church, the church gathered, that's us here, now. And then the church scattered or, or set out, being salt and light, in the world out there. God doesn't make the distinction. We are the called out ones. Whether we're here or working in a home office or working in our business or working for somebody else. We come together as community because our, our, our commonality is based on 
the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And no, we don't have to have a building. The building's incidental. And if you want to go to the next slide, uh, again, I was profoundly affected by this. This is a picture in Ukraine. It was taken, I think, it would have been Friday, I think, given the time differences. It's very, very recent. Here's a bombed-out church. It's an Orthodox church, but that's okay. What's happening? They're doing church in a bombed-out building. <laughs> See, the church can't be destroyed. The building can be destroyed. The church can't be destroyed. The church can't be destroyed for two reasons. One is Jesus is building it. But the other is, it's not built on any kind of human or institutional foundation. It's built on a revelation. And you can never destroy that revelation. There is no power of hell, even if it's embodied in a person like President Putin, that can hold back the power of the church. Look at Peter. He had that original revelation that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. He messed up big time, but when he was empowered through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, look what happened. And the church has never been destroyed since then despite all the persecution, despite all the secularization of society, the church has never, never succumbed. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the gospel, and I will give you the authority to bind it truth is already bound and loosed in heaven. And the church is the community of believers. It is the people, but it goes far deeper than being a people. It's the people who are drawn together because of the revelation that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hallelujah!